Dr. David Perlmutter here. We're all interested in living a long and a healthy life. We want to have a good lifespan and we want to be as healthy as we can during the time uh, that we remain alive. And there's so much research that is going on these days looking at uh, both our longevity and our health span as well. Uh, we know that the foods that we eat or the foods that we avoid for that matter uh, have a, a significant role to play in changing various pathways, biochemical pathways in our bodies that have a role to play in our ability to rid ourselves, for example, of defective cells, in limiting the growth of things that may turn cancerous, etc. Uh, there's a lot of research being done looking at the so-called sirtuin pathway. Many of you have heard of that. And more recently, we're hearing a lot more about some of the upstream pathways that relate to the sirtuin pathway. Uh, things like IGF-1 and the mTOR pathway. And these are the pathways that we're going to explore in today's program with our guest, uh, James Clement. James Clement is the author of this new book called The Switch, uh, which I had the opportunity to review uh, an advanced copy of and found it to be very, very interesting. It's certainly an area that we've been looking at quite aggressively because it is a metabolic a biochemical switch in the body that has significant implications in terms of the balance between building up and breaking down. We tend to focus on building up, getting bigger muscles, becoming bigger and stronger, etc. But the process of autophagy, of breaking down uh, things that are defective within our cells, for example, is actually extremely important as it relates to longevity in everything from yeast to uh, roundworms to rodents, primates, and humans. So we need to look at that. And so what we will do on our program today is explore this switch, the title of the book, The Switch. We'll explore the switch that really is the switch between building up and breaking down. I'll tell you a little bit more about the author. James Clement is a lawyer and entrepreneur turned research scientist who's devoted the past two decades to understanding the basic science of life extension. He is best known for his work in what is called the Supercentenarian Research Study, uh, which he started in uh, 2010 with uh, Professor uh, George Church at Harvard Medical School. Uh, he's had worldwide collaborations in his laboratory, which is in Gainesville, Florida, where he focuses on advancing cutting-edge biomedical discoveries so that we can all learn and perhaps even take advantage of these breakthrough discoveries that he is making in his uh, laboratory. So let's just jump right into our interview today. David, it's uh, great to be speaking with you. So we are going to learn today what the switch is all about. And uh, as I mentioned in the, uh, at the introduction, there's a lot of talk these days about uh, how we can really affect some important metabolic processes in our bodies. Uh, that may have a, uh, an important role in terms of disease resistance and even longevity. So first of all, uh, define for us what the switch is, and then I'd like to take a step back and ask you in particular, how did you get to that spot? Sure. Um, so the, the switch I refer to is a metabolic switch that's inside our cells uh, called mTOR, and it basically switches the cell's uh, focus from either growth uh, to repair. And unfortunately, in modern civilization from about the mid 1800s on, uh, it's almost always in the growth state and never in the repair. And so the book is really about 
um, learning about the switch and how to uh, at least periodically turn on the repair mechanisms. And for our viewers, uh, this is very, very important information because I think, uh, you know, we live in a time when for the past three years, uh, life expectancy in America has gone down, that we're being crippled worldwide by chronic degenerative conditions. And we're sort of living under this misguided idea that the more we eat, the more protein, especially the better for us. And, you know, we're going to now explore this switching mechanism and how we control it and how we can basically turn it off. I mean, don't we all think that it's best to be in growth mode all the time? Um, certainly, you do want to be in growth mode um, periodically because that's what replaces our muscle cells, our neurons, our stem cells, regenerates our immune system, etc. But if you keep that on all the time, proliferation or cell proliferation is also what we call cancer. And diabetes, heart disease, and Alzheimer's are all linked to this switch being turned on full time and autophagy, the repair mechanism uh, being turned off. So this is a very important term. It's called uh, autophagy, auto, self, phagy, eating. And it's basically the way that cells are able to rid themselves of debris, of organelles, for example, that are defective. And it's a very important a process basically allowing our bodies to not necessarily take out the garbage, but to recycle. And why would we have such a mechanism in place? Well, um, uh, billions of years ago, bacteria had to uh, adapt to times of feast and times of famine. And the ones that learned to cope with the famine, that is deprivation of uh, of uh, nutrients being available, uh, those uh, cells that could hunker down and, and survive uh, were the ones that we evolved from. So all plants and organisms that we know about have this same cellular mechanism in them called uh, TOR in bacteria and mTOR in the rest of us. And uh, this process that helped them survive uh, basically broke down misfolded proteins and dysfunctional organelles like mitochondria that weren't working properly inside the cell and provided them with nutrients, in this case amino acids from those uh, proteins and organelles that the cell could use to keep functioning. But it had this added benefit for long-lived species that it got rid of things that would essentially jam up the works, these misfolded proteins and free radical producing mitochondria. So I want to just make sure that we keep uh, our audience really uh, in a place of, of grasping what we are talking about and more importantly, why this is really very valuable information. Uh, let's talk about how this whole pathway relates to illness, relates to longevity. Uh, we, we, you know, let's extrapolate from yeast and from C. elegans uh, and all the way up to mammals and, and humans. Talk to us about why this really matters. Well, we know that um, most neurological age-related illnesses are actually folding, uh, protein folding problems. Uh, and this ranges from Huntington's to Alzheimer's. And... Uh, 
we also know that uh, uh, protein folding is involved in cardiovascular disease uh, with atherosclerosis and uh, certainly in uh, diabetes as well. So um, it turns out um, you can look at uh, hunter-gatherer groups and uh, peoples around the world currently living, uh, which I talk about in the book, the Okinawans, the Loma Linda vegans, uh, monks in Mount Athos, Greece, um, that all live non-traditional Western diet lifestyles. So they practice fasting or calorie restriction or other ways that are not the typical way Americans and Northern Europeans eat um, that uh, limit the uh, mTOR being turned on and keep autophagy turned up much more. And you see that these groups of people, in fact, do, have, uh, do not have cancer and diabetes or neurological diseases uh, at the same rate as, um, as normal people. So you've discovered something I think that's really very important, that there is a relationship between perhaps some of these lifestyle choices of these groups, some of them being in the, uh, included in the blue zones, uh, and it relates to two things that you mentioned, you believe, calorie restriction and occasional fasting, uh, that tends to activate this, this pathway that you're talking about, the uh, mTOR pathway, that then enhances this process of autophagy to clear out cellular debris. Now let's go upstream just a little bit before mTOR, at least biochemically, and explore uh, something related to insulin, which is IGF-1. Let's talk about how that relates to the, the, this whole pathway, its, its activation or its suppression. Right, well, there's been a tremendous amount of research, scientific research on the IGF-1 pathway. Um, it's been looked at in uh, calorie-restricted animals, so um, Clyde McKay at Cornell was doing research on uh, calorie-restricted rats, I believe, uh, back in 1935. And uh, later, uh, Stephen Spindler at UC Riverside did tremendous amounts of research on calorie-restricted animals. And one of the things that he interestingly found was that if you restricted calories but kept the protein levels up, um, that uh, you didn't get the benefits of calorie restriction. And they traced this to the IGF-1 pathway. And this pathway is one of several sensors that essentially feed into this mTOR complex and tell it whether it should be in growth mode or recycling mode. And if you um, essentially limit the IGF-1 levels, which could be insulin levels, um, so we have both IGF-1 uh, in our bloodstream, but also insulin, and both of them act on this particular receptor. So high blood sugar equals high insulin levels, which um, turns on this particular switch, so to speak, and tells mTOR to be in the growth stage. Um, so does oxygen, so um, intermittent hypoxia, which I talk about several um, uh, long-lived species undergo intermittent hypoxia on a regular basis. Naked mole rats, um, which are sort of uh, long-lived rodents, and then uh, bowhead whales, which are mammals like us, but they can live over 200 years. Um, so 
There's examples in nature of uh, organisms that have limited IGF-1 and have extraordinarily long, longer lives and better health than their counterparts. Well, and there are examples in humans as well. I mean, uh, can we explore a little bit the work by Laran uh, in Israel and how that information allowed you to clarify your understanding of this pathway? Certainly. Um, so there was a group of people that um, uh, were brought to him um, to study essentially their endocrinology and to help them. They, they were uh, born as dwarfs. Um, so the, the men uh, average um, uh, around four feet and the women slightly smaller. And um, um, they were traced back to a family in Spain when Spain was Moorish. And um, half of that group um, uh, went off to um, the Middle East and Israel and the other half went to South America. So there's two populations of individuals um, that have these um, um, genetic propensity towards this particular kind of dwarfism that's named after the person that discovered it, Laron. Um, so it's called Laron syndrome, but it's a, a receptor problem that limits their ability, in their case, to uh, process uh, IGF-1 in the liver. Um, so um, those, it's an uh, autosomal recessive um, trait, which, as you know, means that both parents have to be carriers. Uh, so uh, if both parents are carriers, then about 50% of the children will have um, inherited both genes and will be dwarfs. Uh, but the interesting thing is that they're uh, protected from diabetes and cancer. So there's only one recorded history of someone having a tumor among a group of uh, about three to 400 of them alive at any time since the, the Middle Ages. Um, and uh, they also uh, have much lower incidences of neurological disease. Um, so uh, this is another example where by limiting um, IGF-1, um, they're basically impervious to cancer, and they're also uh, protected from cancer, um, diabetes, cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, etc. Um, but obviously, we don't want this uh, particular loss of function mutation in ourselves and, and all be dwarfs, but we can, through diet, limit um, uh, the amount of IGF-1 that our body produces. So we want to limit the amount of IGF-1. It's part of the insulin pathway because of, uh, of the role that IGF-1 plays in signaling mTOR. And I want to come back to that in just a moment in terms of those dietary strategies that you talk about. Uh, but uh, this seems to segue quite nicely to the work of researchers like Dr. David Sinclair at Harvard that are evaluating the... Uh, um, other pathways uh, looking at related to aging. And so I, I wonder if you could just talk about his work uh, with reference to the sirtuins and how that seems quite connected to what we're talking about. Um, that's absolutely correct. Uh, Lenny Granti at MIT, uh, where David was uh, a postdoc, and now David uh, is a genetics professor at Harvard Medical School, 
they both have done a lot of research on sirtuins, um, which um, in, in particular are turned on uh, in calorie restriction. So they uh, are part of the downstream mechanism that when mTOR is turned down, sirtuins are turned up. And uh, David in particular started a company um, to uh, create um, compounds that would help turn up sirtuins all the time and found that they were very, very beneficial to rodents with diabetes and help protect them as well as lengthen their lifespan. Um, the trouble is, is that Again, in our Western diet, when we eat lots of amino acids that specifically are made to turn on mTOR, um, and this is primarily from breast milk. So, of course, young animals want to grow as fast as possible, especially calves. So, you know, they need to be able to run and keep up with the herd, stay away from predators. So, cow's milk has a lot of the amino acids that turn on mTOR and really spur growth. In fact, four times more leucine than human breast milk. So when, when humans now drink um, dairy products or eat cheese, they're getting really high concentrations of this um, protein that's meant to help calves grow as quickly as possible and put on as much weight as possible. And that's not something that we want um, going on in us. So when we talk about milk, it might be more than just the casein that people may react to, the lactose sugar, but you're talking about the, the uh, amino acid array in the proteins in milk that may actually have an effect on mTOR spurring growth and keeping Absolutely. us from activating autophagy, and that might have a role to play in reducing lifespan and making us more susceptible to degenerative conditions uh, cancer, things like that, diabetes, and even misfolded protein issues like, like Alzheimer's and perhaps Parkinson's. That's exactly so, um, right. There are uh, some mimetics, uh, if you will, of caloric restriction that have been talked about that can uh, work through this pathway as well and help stimulate the sirtuins. Um, do you talk about that much uh, either in the book? I don't recall reading about things like resveratrol. But um, what are your thoughts on those so-called caloric uh, restriction mimetics? So all of these compounds, and, and there's numerous ones, I think I mentioned 20 or 30 of them. Um, they're also known as uh, anti-tumorgenic compounds. So it means that it reduces the likelihood of, of tumors being formed. And, it, and they all work uh, by suppressing mTOR and turning up autophagy. Um, so whether it's uh, ECGC, uh, glucosamine, uh, even aspirin, all to some extent suppress mTOR and um, uh, uh, turn up autophagy. And that's the part of calorie restriction that they are in fact mimicking and what provides the um, uh, benefits from taking these kind of supplements. So I do go over that. And if you want to balance uh, this anabolic state where you're, you're undergoing growth with the catabolic state where you're doing repair, you want to take those supplements only during the catabolic repair period. If you're trying to build muscle, and if you think about it, branched chain amino acids, which are basically the ones you would get from whey protein, from milk, 
that's what bodybuilders use to grow muscles and um, and really uh, become strong. Um, that is um, uh, contrary to taking these kind of uh, calorie mimic drugs. So when you're in this anabolic state, you really just want uh, mTOR to be turned on, and that's the period when you want to be doing like lift weightlifting and endurance exercises and things to really put on muscle and also put on a little weight. And then uh, at the other times, uh, you want to fast, reduce your protein intake, um, do calorie restriction. And I talk about there's different ways to accomplish this. Um, ketogenic diets, um, eating like a Loma Linda vegan, for example, with very low um, uh, fish or meat or, or dairy intake, uh, and accomplishing this um, inhibition of mTOR. So it's, you, uh, you described basically in the book how to eat, and it looked overall like it, it seemed to be a bit protein-restricted, at least in terms of what pe people are commonly eating or used to eating. And uh, I think that seems to be a trend these days uh, in terms of this whole notion of activation of autophagy. Nonetheless, suddenly we're seeing this carnivorous uh, diet appearing where there is virtually no uh, dietary uh, fiber and uh, very little vegetables, almost zero carbohydrate, and yet, um, you know, a lot, a lot of protein. And based on what you're telling us today, that may not seem to be an appropriate diet if we want to live long and be disease resistant. Well, uh, what we don't find is any of these groups, hunter-gatherers or Loma Linda, vegans, uh, Okinawans, monks, etc. We don't find any groups uh, living that are um, high meat, high dairy consumers that are long lived. Um, so that's a concern to me. Um, you could limit your carbohydrates and reduce your insulin levels. And um, technically, I think you could, you could get into ketogenesis um, by doing that, but your liver will actually make glucose from protein. So if you don't um, deplete your glycogen stores, and you need to deplete those in order for uh, mTOR to go into this catabolic state, um, then um, uh, being on a carnivore diet really won't um, mimic all of these uh, calorie restriction-like benefits that you get from these various diets, whether it's ketogenic or, or intermittent fasting or actual calorie restriction. So the, the switch that you identified, uh, in fact, the title of your book, The Switch, is really a, a way of our bodies adapting to feast versus famine, as opposed to the 24-7 bombardment with calories and especially amino acids and carbs uh, that we're seeing today. It was the idea that when we didn't have uh, a source of calories during the periods of, of food scarcity, that our bodies would respond in a positive way to that low-level stress, we call that hormesis, uh, to allow us to endure. That's, that's absolutely correct. And um, even the invention of breakfast uh, is relatively novel in, in human history. So it actually, you know, the English terminology is to break fast because when you stop eating in the evening and 
again, don't forget that, you know, people went to bed much earlier than people do now. So, you know, uh, only until, you know, the 17, 1800s were people staying up too long uh, after dark. Um, but uh, they had long overnight fasts, and then they would eat their first big meal of the day around 11, 12 o'clock. Uh, and then they would eat a small dinner, uh, followed by, you know, long overnight fast. Um, we're completely uh, away from that in today's culture, where people literally have ice cream and popcorn and things like that right up till bedtime. Uh, and then as soon as they wake up, um, grab a bite to eat. And, you know, it could be a bagel or, or a donut or, or, or cereal. And all of those things are high glycemic. So they instantly turn off um, autophagy and, and turn back up cell growth. And I, and I think no, I'm just going to ask the, the question. You were talking a moment ago about the branch chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Uh, the fact that dairy products, for example, uh, are you know contain branch chain amino acids. Is this a quantity kind of an issue, whereby even small amounts found in uh, the uh, the creamer in your coffee, for example, first thing in the morning, can actually lead to changes in IGF one expression and therefore affect mTOR? It absolutely does. Um, so interestingly enough, I sent my book um, to some researchers that I've known a really long time. Uh, one of them had been um, trying to diet uh, for a year or more and wasn't being very successful. And he said, I read your book and I stopped putting coffee uh, cream in my coffee in the morning. And he said, within a week, I started losing weight. And he, and um, uh Actually, one of my publishers, uh, hearing that story, did the same thing and had the exact same results. So uh, even a small amount of dairy will essentially just uh, like wedge the accelerator on this mTOR uh, molecule and keep it in the anabolic state, regardless of what else we try and do. So again, it, it sounds like we're looking at then a balance between uh, uh, and anabolic activity and catabolic activity, uh, meaning building up and breaking down. It sort of sounds like the, uh, the bird song, uh, turn, turn, turn. <laughs> to every day there is a season, time to build up, a time to break down. Um, in our modern world, everyone's wanting to build up and uh, thinking that that's the ticket. But uh, I'd like to walk through what are some of your considerations, and I know we've touched on this earlier, but what are some of the downsides of always building up? Uh, well, certainly uh, increased cancer risk is um, noticed in every organism that has mTOR turned on. And um, in longer lived organisms, uh, you don't see any clearing out of these dysfunctional mitochondria or these misfolded proteins. And so you get um, uh, numerous health problems from that, including the cardiovascular disease and cognitive impairment, including Alzheimer's. So, um, you know, just for our viewers, the, the notion of wanting to clear out defective mitochondria, I think is really very important. We recognize primarily that Alzheimer's, as an example, is an acquired mitochondropathy or an acquired dysfunction, problematic function of the mitochondria. When the mitochondria are working uh, inefficiently and we propagate <clears throat> these defective mitochondria, because we haven't uh, cleared them out, 
ultimately the energy balance uh, within that neuron, comparing the energy level, uh, looking at what's called the transmembrane potential. In other words, the electrical voltage between the inside of the cell and the outside of the cell is changed, and that ultimately activates certain pathways called the caspase uh, pathways that turn on a process called apoptosis. That sounds very complicated, but what I'm saying is defective mitochondria leads to pre-programmed cell death. And <laughs> as it relates to your brain cells, might not necessarily be something we want to do. So to get back to our discussion, we really want to do what we can to keep our mitochondria, our energy producers, healthy uh, and help our bodies rid themselves, our cells rid themselves of those defective mitochondria, because if they are defective, they may still propagate, they may still reproduce, and ultimately Absolutely. we begin to grow mitochondria that are not as effective in producing energy, and that can lead to pre-programmed cell death. Yeah. So uh, where do we stand in the world of being uh, able to influence this pathway well beyond just what <clears throat> your lifestyle recommendations are telling us, and even supplements. I mean, is there a pharmaceutical angle here that people are looking at in terms of jumping in on this pathway? I know, you know, rapamycin, where this was originally identified, uh, you know, is something that is used for um, to keep people from, for example, rejecting transplant organs, etc. But are there other ways that we can uh, target these receptors to turn down mTOR that might be valuable for us? There's a lot of research being done on um, rapamycin itself. I think there's over 2,000 clinical trials, mostly involving how to use rapamycin to inhibit cancer. So by uh, stopping mTOR at the right stage, then you can keep these cells from proliferating. Um, uh, on the other hand, there's companies that are producing molecules that are similar to rapamycin that they want to turn on only one of the two mTORC complexes. So one of the complexes called mTORC1 is more associated with the benefits and mTORC2 is associated with the uh, autoimmune response that protects uh, transplant patients, but it also upregulates autoimmunity. So it can um, it can suppress your immune system and cause you to um, uh, essentially um, get arthritis and other other issues as well. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, metformin, um, berberine as a natural compound, these drugs all uh, affect energy production inside the cell, reduce ATP, and cause something called AMPK to be turned on. That molecule is upstream of mTOR and also regulates mTOR. So if you suppress your energy levels, which you could also do through high exertion of exercise. So that's another way of turning autophagy on is just um, doing a lot more intense exercise, especially uh, without drinking Gatorade and you know replenishing your glycogen stores. So if you can uh, burn through uh, your glucose with, with exercise, you can also turn off um, mTOR, just like these uh, pharmaceutical and uh, nutraceutical compounds. Well, let's talk about uh, metformin for just a moment because you brought it up. I mean, this is probably remains the most commonly prescribed uh, medication for type 2 diabetics. 
And uh, you did mention a, a couple of uh, ideas in terms of how it works mechanistically, AMP kinase, uh, and also through energy inhibition, specifically by inhibition of complex one uh, as it relates to mitochondrial function. And that might serve then to have a downstream effect in terms of helping regulate mTOR activity. Right. I, recently attended a uh, longevity uh, event, and I was surprised to learn that about half of the research scientists in the room were actually non-diabetic, were taking uh, metformin, had bought into this notion uh, that this was a, a really handy way of really amplifying what you are talking about in your book, The Switch. And, uh, you know, it, we like to say above all, do no harm and look at what's called risk-benefit ratio. Uh, there was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, several years ago that looked at giving pre-diabetics either lifestyle change, dietary change, and uh, exercise versus metformin and looked at the conversion rate to uh, becoming full-blown diabetic. And they found that actually there was a slight advantage to those who got the lifestyle recommendations or were in that group uh, in terms of their reduced risk for becoming diabetic versus the metformin group, but the mortality uh, was twice as high in the group receiving the metformin versus the lifestyle change. So, you know, recalling that study as I was chatting with these individuals who were all in on taking metformin uh, made me wonder if, in fact, that is necessarily the way we want to go. You know, these systems work with all kinds of checks and balances. And when you flood one part of this uh, system uh, overwhelmingly, like you do with uh, metformin, for example, we wonder if, if that is just too aggressive of a modulation of these pathways. Uh, there, there is a push these days to look at another part of this whole scheme, and that is through uh, affecting uh, NAD plus using uh, nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide, uh, because that is certainly playing into the energy part of this equation as well. Uh, and again, back, getting back to Dr. David Sinclair, looking at the effects of both nicotinamide riboside, nicotinamide mononucleotide in being able to affect this pathway and ultimately downstream effects like sirtuin. Uh, I think it's very exciting, but to me, it just seems more valuable and likely safer to approach this. Uh, as you do in the switch, and that is by emulating what our ancestors must have uh, done to survive, uh, not knowingly, but how these pathways must have been influenced that augmented their survivability and therefore pass on their genome to you and me, and that is through periodically stressing our systems by caloric restriction, and as you just brought up, uh, by engaging in pushing our exercise a little bit. Absolutely. And, and I agree with your cautions about taking drugs that keep only one side of this switch on all the time. Um, and I've even had conversations with some of these individuals who have been on metformin for a couple of years and are my age or older. And I've said, hey, have you noticed any muscle loss? And they said, well, yeah, I'm getting older. So, yeah, my muscles are a lot smaller than they used to be. And I was saying, like, so do you see a contradiction here that um, you're taking something that turns off um, muscle growth? Like, don't you think you should balance this a little more and turn it on periodically? And, you know, 
I don't think it's really crossed their minds. They they understand how valuable turning on autophagy is. Um, there's more and more popular articles about it, and certainly tremendous amounts of scientific literature supporting it. But it's sort of like saying, I heard that fasting is really good, so I'm going to fast the rest of my life, um, you know, and just starve myself to death. Like, that doesn't work. Uh, you know, we have to understand how our human body evolved, uh, what these mechanisms are. And one of the things I try and do in the book is to cover this uh, broadly enough and in, in enough detail without overwhelming the reader that they can go away later. And if someone talks to them about a protein diet or you know some later uh, fad diet, that they can they can use this information to analyze it and say, yeah, but you know this is going to turn on autophagy or this is going to turn on mTOR at a time that I do or don't want it on. And so they'll be able to make these decisions for themselves, um, how to cycle back and forth and how to incorporate new information as it comes along, because this switch isn't going anywhere. It's, it's hardwired into us and all the plants and, and animals on the planet. We have to abide by it. Well, I, again, I think that, you know, you and I may have jumped in a little bit deep, and I know that our viewers might be uh, doing a little head scratching right now, but. I, I just want to assure everybody that uh, the way you presented this material is really very broken down, uh, piece by piece, very understandable. You know, there are two major players that you talk about, and that is IGF-1 and mTOR. So if there are only two things that you really have to take away from the switch is that, uh, you know, this activation of IGF-1 and activation of mTOR uh, are things that we want to reduce. Uh, is there a time for it? Yeah, you bet there is when we're trying to be anabolic and grow. But your point is well taken that, you know, uh, the extreme of uh, anabolic activity is unbridled growth that we see uh, representing cancer. And that there is a very important time for cleaning things out and uh, getting rid of the defective material. So again, I, you know, while we jumped into some pretty uh, deep uh, areas of science, the book is very, very straightforward. And beyond that, it's a real pleasure to read. I mean, I never knew about rapamycin in terms of the name coming from Easter, the Easter Islands and its discovery and being brought back and, you know, other kinds of uh, uh, anecdotes that you describe. So it's a very uh, pleasurable book to read. Everybody in uh, the podcast world, I think right now, is really kind of fixating on this notion of autophagy. And I think uh, with very good reason. I want to just get your opinion on one last topic before we go today, and that is uh, something that is, I think, puzzling to a lot of us who think about this kind of stuff. Not that it keeps us up at night, shouldn't, because we need to sleep, but that is the idea that we really might want to have upregulation of IGF-1 as it relates to the brain, as it relates to the whole notion of neurogenesis. So we have, on the one hand, trying to keep IGF-1 in check as it relates to the rest of the body. But on the other hand, we know that IGF-1, uh, like BDNF, is a, acts as a trophic hormone in the brain, stimulating both, uh, well, mostly stimulating neurogenesis, the growth of new brain cells. What, uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, puzzle, if you will? Well, again, looking at uh, everything from bacteria to humans, uh, my conclusion was uh, a ratio of about 80 to 20. 
Uh, 80% of the time in a semi-catabolic state, at least with overnight fasting, and 20% of the time uh, really building up your muscles, uh, neurogenesis, uh, mitogenesis, making new mitochondria, uh, improving your immune system. All these things need to be turned up as well. But if you think about um, most of us uh, who have... Um, uh, uh, ancestors from North America and, and uh, Northern Europe, um, you know, they went through 20,000 years of an ice age, um, only about uh, 10,000 years ago. And, um, you know, they had limited resources and the body evolved to um, conserve and to um, take energy and put it into fat. And that was our long term resource to get through long, cold winters where um, nutrients weren't as available. And um, we're still living with that body in a time when nutrients aren't uh, in short supply. And, and one of the most important things um, is that, you know, people realize that as long as your glycogen stores are full, and we, I talk about this a lot in the book, um, you're never going to burn fat because the body is simply going to say, I don't know when I'm going to need this energy. I know that a, a famine is just around the corner because that's how we evolved. And therefore, I'm going to just store for that time period. But if you think about what humans were exposed to, um, you know, they had one good season a year, you know, summer and fall, um, sort of that, that mid point between uh, summer and fall where they could uh, get a lot of uh, a lot of protein and a lot of vegetables and uh, berries and everything was plentiful and then they built up a little muscle and fat to make it through a pretty hard winter. Um, so I think that keeping this sort of uh, evolutionary history in mind helps us make right choices for ourselves. We can't go too long with autophagy being turned on and mTOR off, or we will start um, um, having fewer brain cells and stem cells and uh, muscle cells, etc. Uh, but on the other hand, um, for a good part of the year, we don't want that to be the case because otherwise we'll risk higher and higher levels of, of uh, cancer risk. Hmm. Well, listen, uh, thank you for your time today. It's, it's a great book, and uh, I will urge uh, our viewers. Uh, again, I got, I, <clears throat> I got the manuscript one. Didn't, I'm looking for my hard copy one of these days, hopefully. And uh, great work, and I think uh, the information is really, really valuable um, as people try to work their way through this and try to look at the value of the recommendations of the day of, uh, you know, the so-called paleo diet as if that were well-defined, but <clears throat> more well-defined would be getting into ketosis because we can measure that ketogenic diet, uh, et cetera. And, you know, what seems to be sort of trending right now is the notion of being on more of a carnivorous diet, eating much more protein, which I think fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, your book would argue against. Uh, do I, am I okay with that? <laughs> Generally so. I think there's some value to people who uh, are grain sensitive, as you have uh, pointed out. 
uh, Green Brain is, is a great book. And um, a lot of people suffer from um, uh, not being able to handle um, grains because, you know, it, it, it came fairly recent in our evolutionary history. Um, and so a carnivore diet, in a sense, is an exclusion diet. Um, if you go on an all-meat diet, you're not eating a lot of, of uh, rich carbohydrates uh, that are going to cause, you know, obesity and, and other issues. So anytime you're on a diet that loses weight and um, um, keeps you away from sugar and, and uh, high glycemic uh, breads and, and flour uh, products, I think that's great. Um, but it's not going to turn on uh, autophagy the way we want. So um, there are ways that's discussed in the book to, to enjoy the benefits of both. And, and I think that's, uh, that's where we'll leave it uh, for the carnivore people. Yeah, ultimately people make up their own minds, but I think you've really added some very, very uh, important information here so people can make a more informed decision as to what's best for them. So, uh, or themselves, I guess. Uh, thank you for joining us and I hope we get a chance to see each other sometime. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Bye for now. So thank you, James Clement, for that really interesting information about the switch. The switch between anabolic activity and catabolic activity, the switch between breaking down and building up, and how important it is to consider not just building up, but the value of breaking down and getting rid of things that may well be defective. We know that accumulation, for example, of misfolded proteins is a sort of a central theme in neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's. We know that excessive buildup of tissue may uh, be what underlies things like cancer. So the idea of helping to break things down, I think is extremely valuable. And how interesting it is that we have direct control over uh, this pathway, this switch, the title of his book, uh, but based upon our lifestyle choices as it relates primarily to our dietary choices, how and uh, when we eat, as well as other uh, things like the amount of exercise we get, etc. So again, here's the book. It is called The Switch, and uh, trying to hold that so you don't get a reflection. James Clement was our guest today. Hope you enjoyed the program, and always uh, want to thank you for listening and watching. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Bye for now.